Welcome to my so-called opera life, a podcast for opera singers by opera singers, where we work to connect, inform, empower, and inspire musicians at all levels and stages of their career. Each episode, we'll explore a piece of the never-ending puzzle of the so-called opera life, humble brags and therapeutic complaints, as well as practical information about how this business works. Each piece helping you on your journey towards success, which we believe should really mean happiness. I'm Marcel. And I'm Elise. And we're two sopranos trying to live our best so-called opera lives. So thank you guys so much for coming on the podcast. And I would love to just get little introductions on um, who you guys are, both as singers and as um what your roles are in uh, the Soloist Coalition. Well, uh, thanks very much for having us. Uh, I'm David Salisbury Fry. Uh, I'm a bass singer and I'm currently serving as uh, chair pro tem uh, for the AGMA Soloist Coalition. Thank you so much for having us. I'm Liz Rosenberg and I am a soprano. Um, I guess if you had to quantify it it would be dramatic soprano I suppose but I just like to label myself as a soprano and I am the secretary pro tem of the soloist coalition. My name is Abby Levis I'm thrilled to be here and I am a soprano in pants um otherwise known as a lyric mezzo um and I am the co-chair of the soloist coalition Young Artist Forum, one of the co-chairs, and I also serve on the communications or external communications committee of the current pro tem soloist coalition. Great. Awesome. So, you know, Marcel and I know about the soloist coalition on all of the little Facebook groups and, and doing, you know, uh, some research on how it was started and, and all the, things you guys have been starting to amp up and do so how has this this coalition been growing and expanding and changing since since it started well um it's it's been a really really interesting few months uh i think is is a is an understatement uh because uh the sc began uh immediately pre-pandemic and uh when the pandemic resulted in the shutdown of our industry, the shutdown of all of our venues, uh, suddenly soloist singers in America had a lot of time on their hands. And that uh, crisis created an opportunity for us to have conversations, uh, to really begin to work out uh, what, the issues with our industry are that long predated the pandemic and that if we are going to figure out a way uh, to reboot our industry, uh, do we want to come back as quickly as possible to exactly what we left behind? Mm. Uh, Or are there ways in which now that we are all on pause, uh, we can begin to think about some of the systemic problems that we've been confronting uh, that we would like to see addressed as well. Uh, and the conversations that that's resulted in ha- have been uh, you know, tremendously inspiring for me to watch unfold. Uh, because I think that you know, awareness is an essential prerequisite for change. 
And uh, seeing the growing awareness uh, has been uh, tremendously, tremendously valuable. Who is that? I have to know. That, that's Buster. Buster. Uh, Buster is a cantankerous old man of a cat. <laughs> um, oh, he's so Aww. handsome. <laughs> oh my gosh, so cute. For the benefit of our listening audience, he's a gorgeous, gorgeous little kitty. <laughs> and you may be hearing him again soon. Uh, pets are welcome. <laughs> we both have pets and we frequently have them and their bells and their growls and everything <laughs> on the podcast. Uh, <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay, great. So then what, what are the main objectives of the coalition as it stands now? Well, um, our mission is in process of evolving in the sense that in order to solve the problems, we need to identify them. And we also need to figure out how best, once we have understood them in their full dimensions, how to raise awareness of the problem so that we can begin to tackle them. Um, but they are manifold, they're multifaceted, and they're interactive. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the great challenges, uh, is that, you know, you, you, you tug on one string and it unravels a whole lot. You know, every dial, lever, and switch that you would seek to turn has an impact elsewhere down the chain. Um, but uh, our insert point with all of this was looking at the union aspect uh, of our industry and uh, how that impacts on the lives of the workers in this industry uh, and the sort of unexpected ways in which it can impact on the aesthetics of the art form, the viability of the art form, um, and I'm really looking forward to sort of diving into to those details with you guys as, as this, uh, podcast unfolds. Yeah, that's incredible. So if, if I'm sort of understanding a little bit, it seems like some of those objectives are, are currently like, you're currently working them out with the members of the coalition themselves. Yes, absolutely. Uh, we, uh, we are working in, in groups of various sizes uh, right now. We have small working groups that are tackling specific issues, taking their thinking and findings to uh, a larger, what we're calling a core group right now, uh, that's uh, about 40, 50 members. And uh, then also going out to the larger community of AGMA member soloists uh, through town halls. We've had five of them so far uh to crowdsource data and crowdsource concerns uh we just we took three poll questions in our last town hall and um those same poll questions went out as a survey uh to agma soloist members uh last week and the the responses that we get uh are really helping us to refine our mission mm -hmm. yeah yeah, I've seen some of them. That's great. So we kind of mentioned this in the pre-talk, but I, I think this might be a good juncture to maybe talk about what relationship the coalition has with AGMA, if any, and the kind of disclaimer you guys are using right now. 
Uh, yeah, well, I'll, I will read this into the record for, for our benefit. Uh, Agma Solus Coalition is an independent grassroots movement of Agma Solus members working together to improve our union. The coalition is not affiliated with or endorsed by Agma. Um, we are shaping ourselves in the mold of a union caucus uh, that is working for both policy and political change within the union. And there are a lot of examples that we can point to uh, in the broader labor movement. Uh, Teamsters for a Democratic Union is a very good example. Uh, and within the world of the entertainment unions in the United States, uh, the uh, Fair Wage on Council uh, Caucus uh, within Actors' Equity is a very good example. Uh, Unite for Strength uh, within SAG-AFTRA is another very good example. 802 Musicians for Change, mm -hmm. uh, who had a very, very successful campaign last year uh, for AFM Local 802 New York. Uh, so that is uh, what we are building ourselves as structurally, and it gives us a lot of flexibility uh, to be able to a look at AGMA's structure and its policies and its bargaining priorities and its leadership and its staff and ask where uh, change is needed and to what end. Mm -hmm. So who, who can join AGMA then? I mean, who can join the Solos Coalition? The Solos Coalition is uh, right now uh, open to any interested AGMA soloist in good standing. Uh, but we are also working on uh, carving out uh, membership uh, opportunities for non-AGMA soloists as well. And this is something that our bylaws committee is hashing out as we speak. Uh, because um, many of the soloists, especially the younger soloists, who are not AGMA members yet, uh, are are AGMA members in the future, mm -hmm. uh, we, we very much hope, and uh, we want them to feel like they are about to join a union that will function well and, uh, and uplift them in mm -hmm. their lives and careers. And so having that input of, you know, what do you need from your union or, you know, what is it that uh, has made it such that you've had the career that you've had and not yet had uh, occasion to join AGMA or felt the need to join AGMA, uh, that if we fail to capture that, if we fail to have that conversation, uh, then we're not serving the labor movement as well as we could. Mm -hmm. I will say that non-AGMA members are welcome to join the Soloist Coalition Young Artist Forum. Um, that is something we are very clear about in that particular group. Um, as David said, the young artists, we very much view them as future AGMA members. And so having their input on the union that they wanna join is really, really important to us. And so when it comes to joining, if you're not an AGMA member, the SCYA is definitely open to you. Great, great. <clears throat> and arguably, there's a lot of education that has gone on um, in both the SCYA and, and, and the SC. I think we're all, uh, much more educated about uh, labor policy and law and how things function within unions um, so much more than before. I mean, I admittedly, personally, um, was so content with the status quo that I, 
I acknowledged that I was part of a union, but I didn't really understand what the union does for me. Um, and for a very long time, I looked at it as a service that I pay into instead of, instead of the reality that as a member, I have the right to contribute to the conversations that are being had. So, um, you know, it's, it's not an easy thing to raise the collective intelligence of soloists and itinerant artists because we're so used to going from one place to another, from one gig to another. So <clears throat> this time in isolation and quarantine has actually been extremely revealing because we've really had to take several steps back and educate ourselves first before we can participate in effective conversations. So um, I think mm -hmm. across the board, all of our members, the SC and the SCYA, we've taken it upon ourselves to just do that initial work to understand the structure of leadership, to understand how people are voted in, who they are, what they represent, where they live, that kind of, all the basic things um, that I think it's fair to say that most soloists feel is very mysterious. <laughs> Um, mm -hmm. yeah. and it doesn't need to be. So that was very much part of our, our mission in the very beginning and, and continues to be an ongoing education. Uh, right. Now, what brought you into that, uh, perspective? What, what led you to the coalition personally, Liz? That's a really good question. Um, I think initially it was curiosity because I, I will acknowledge that as a soloist, we don't want to rock the boat too much and we don't want to question authority. It's sort of how we're, we're trained, how we're schooled. Um, so, but I thought, you know, <laughs> education is power. And at least I will, if I chose not to be involved with the coalition, I will have left that group with more information than when I arrived. Um, and I think as I, it was so funny because we, like David said, we, we began before the pandemic. So it truly was a group of concerned soloists who were interested in teasing out all the mystery and like really getting to the heart of the conversation of what the union does for soloists. Um, because we all have the same grievance and then we all feel that what, you know, the union doesn't do anything for us. And this is not a new conversation. Like if you were to go back to the Agnazines from like 1937, it's the same question. It is the exact same <laughs> conversation that people have been having since the inception of ACMA. Um, so, but as I, you know, then the pandemic happened and like <laughs> gasoline was, was poured on this massive, yeah, exactly. It was like this massive fire. Um, and suddenly we were all in crisis and I think the feeling of community was so strong. It was hard for me to walk away because we mm. soloists from every walk of life, from every level of like visibility within the industry, we're having the same nightmares at night. We were having the same concerns. Um, and that was such a unifying moment for me personally and then when we started to kind of organize the SCYA, I started to understand that 
really at the end of the day, as this pandemic wears on, young artists are so vulnerable to all the systemic loopholes and all of the pitfalls that you learn to avoid by doing that I thought there has to be, there has to be a better way for us all to help each other as a community to not have to learn by doing. We can, we can figure this out together. Yeah. Hmm. What, what are, let's get into some of those. Let's get into it. Uh, what are some of those um, pitfalls and um, can relate it to, to what AGMA may, may try like through its mission or may fail to do um, or just in general, you know, like you're saying, a lot of times we just we experience something and then things say, oh, we're, let's not do that again. <laughs> so can we like talk about some of those particular um, issues that you guys are, are uh, in organization of, I don't know, effortizing? <laughs> well, um, it, this, this uh, might turn into quite a long monologue, but I'll, I'll, I'll do my best. <laughs> um, so uh, MIT did a study just a couple of years back, uh, working out US workers' top priorities for the labor unions of the future. Like what do workers need from their unions? And you know what they got back was entirely unsurprising. Uh, that workers are looking for portable health benefits, portable retirement benefits, portable unemployment benefits, and job search help. And job search help in the world of entertainment uh, is audition access. Mm-hmm. So portable health benefits, portable retirement benefits, portable unemployment benefits, audition access. Uh, you know, it's not like they're looking for you know a chest freezer of Shetland pony meat every alternate Thursday. It's right. not, these are not crazy things to want uh, from a labor union in the United States. Um, and when you have uh, all of those aspects online in your life and career, uh, it, it makes making a living far, far easier than if any of those components are absent. Uh, and those structures are very much in place for the other entertainment uh, unions in the United States. And in AGMA, for soloists, they are entirely absent. Mm. Uh, you know, which is a really, really painful thing to say. Mm-hmm. Um, that structurally, uh, we have no accruing health benefit. Uh, we have very few companies uh, contributing to a retirement plan. Uh, we have no vesting pension that was lost in a consent decree uh, years ago. Uh, that rather than champion the cause of opera soloists being treated as employees by the producing organizations that hire us, that a lot of us work independent contractor contracts, which now has unlocked the possibility of pandemic unemployment assistance. But in the absence of a world melting crisis, uh, unemployment is not available to us. And um, 
instead of having you know the equivalent of an uh, an ECC or an EPA in the world of actors' equity, uh, that our ability uh, to even be heard in audition uh, depends in part on the application fees that we're willing to pay and depend on the level of, of access that the manager that we may or may not have may or may not have with various companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a lot of uh, historical reasons I can go into as to why this situation exists, why this disparity exists. Mm-hmm. But um, as long as this disparity exists, uh, the hurdles that we have to clear to have a viable career as opera singers are, are insurmountably high uh, for everyone. Uh, you know, I, I, I think one of the, the, the misconceptions that people have is that if they, if they grab for and get the brass ring, and now they have one of the very high paying careers that magically they can money away all of these problems and that does constitute career success. But um, there, without the social safety net, there is no uh, rung on the ladder so high that this doesn't impact you. I was talking um, a couple months ago with uh, one of the, the highest earning uh, soloists in, in the profession, someone whose career, you know, we would be extraordinarily uh, envious of. Mm-hmm. And she told me that, you know, her health insurance premium for her family is, you know, well over $20,000 a year. Oh my God. And that, because she's paid as an independent contractor, she has to pay that health insurance premium from her gross compensation. And her gross compensation is also uh, money that she is paying uh, her AGMA uh, 2% working dues on and is paying 10% to her manager for, Mm -hmm. uh, and is coming out uh, post-tax uh, because, you know, there are some limitations on, on the deductibility of self-employed health insurance. And so as a result, in order to have the $20,000 uh, that she needs to pay that health insurance premium, she needs to earn, you know, between twenty-four dollars and $30,000 to have that twenty. dollars mm. uh, And if the work that she were doing were earning her uh, an accruing health benefit, uh, she would have a lot more spending power from what she's earning. Uh, and, and arguably- I think it's noting too that, just remembering that when it comes to healthcare, we can't make money if we're sick. So if we don't have access to healthcare, we can't pay those healthcare costs. So it's this really complicated relationship that if we don't have comprehensive healthcare, how are we supposed to do our jobs? So these issues impact absolutely everyone. They, they make career entry more difficult. They make it more difficult to earn a middle-class existence within this career. And they put enormous economic pressure on even our highest earning uh, colleagues. Uh, so fixing these structural issues that keep the social safety net offline for soloists is, is one of our highest priorities. 
Yeah. Cool. Amazing. Okay, so many questions in my mind, in my brain. (laughs) (laughs) I think that we should start with some of those things that that the coalition slash AGMA like can and can't do, which we, we sort of hit on, but is there anything you want to speak to particularly? Um, in, and then we can go into maybe what more is like of those specific aspects and what, what singers can do themselves. Um, so like, what, what are, you already said, like the four things that, that the organization can and should do. Um, but do you want to speak any more to you know, what you're really fighting for and what you're really organizing and just in terms of what what the union can do. You, you may have already covered it all, but I just wanna be clear. Uh, well, um, that that is one major component of it uh, because when, when you say, okay, well, those things that we would like to see possible and available for soloists as a class of workers, uh, why are they not presently available? Why have we not achieved them in our collective bargaining? Uh, what are the deficits there? Um, and that's when uh, the historical record becomes one of the valuable things to consult because arguably uh, 26, 30 years ago, uh, these things were either in place or we were working to bring them online. Mm. And there are certain structures that made those achievements more likely that uh, AGMA has lost in its culture uh, of bargaining. Uh, that, uh, you know, and the, the reasons behind this are, are, are less important than the results. Mm-hmm. Okay. But, um, in order to have something like an accruing health benefit, for, uh, an accruing health benefit, for example, uh, we need a certain level of uh, consistency and uniformity in how we bargain and what we're bargaining for. Because if you want to have a health plan, you need to have contributions to that health plan, and those contributions need to be coming from every signatory, and they need to be coming in in uniform percentages. Um, and so, one must achieve uniformity in bargaining language. Uh, and one can achieve this uh, through things like tiered bargaining, where you have uh, a contract like the League of Regional Theaters in the in the world of actors' equity, uh, where there's a lot of boilerplate language that is standard but still has some flexibility for budget, or uh, where you are uh, bringing multiple companies to the table to bargain at the same time. Uh, and what? AGMA's leadership and staff have traditionally uh, over the last 25 years prized is flexibility. The ability to, to, to bargain independently with each signatory uh, and customize that contract for the needs of that shop. Uh, and that level of flexibility, uh, while it has some advantages, makes it almost impossible to build the scaffolding that we would need Mm -hmm. uh, to have portable health, portable retirement, portable unemployment. Um, And so I see that as one of the root causes. And what does it take to to shift uh, the union's thinking enough that we begin to behave 
more like a, a national slash international union uh, concerned with the careers of our workers wherever they work mm -hmm. uh, rather than almost a, a, a series of, of locals where every single signatory house uh, behaves independently from every other. Right. And I mean, and, and, and ostensibly that doesn't even help the houses to like have that scaffolding missing because I mean, so many houses are not AGMA signatories, I think, in part because they either don't understand that there's that flexibility or the fact that open openness just makes it impossible for them to, to make it work. Um, I mean, I've worked for a number of companies that in all rights should be AGMA signatory houses and are not. Um, well, that's what I was just, that was my next question was you like, there's a, the whole argument among singers about how like to not worry about AGMA because most opera companies are not AGMA. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Well, and that's, I mean, the majority of them, I've never worked in an AGMA house. Um, you know, I'm working with regional companies that are not signatory. And so for me, it was always this like, well, do I pay a thousand dollars for a union that if something happens to me, you know, is, is not going to come to the table for me anyway. Like fortunately, like I've had one instance of sexual harassment in the workplace um, fortunately, I was at a company that like values a really safe and healthy and open workplace environment. And so like I was able within that company to, you know, make sure that the situation was addressed appropriately. But if I had been in a worse situation, like I would have had no recourse sort of like leap walking away from that job or just putting up with the harassment. There is, I mean, there are tools for union members who take non-union gigs because that is allowed in our union um and unlike equity um there are guest artist agreements in equity but we also have one but the problem that i personally have run into is when i say and it's not even necessarily a monetary uh ask it's just like oh <laughs> gonna call this podcast name the solos coalition we're just gonna call it cats and dogs in the background <laughs> <laughs> i mean i muted my microphone quickly enough because my dog started barking because my mailman came by <laughs> oh my yeah holy crap sorry guys um oh you're all good sorry i would say one thing based on what you just said is um really important to to the scya in particular is that whatever you know, we can get AGMA to do when it comes to sort of raising the floor um, or raising the default of expected behavior from companies, especially signatories, um, tends to trickle down to other companies because while there are a lot of houses that aren't AGMA companies, they sort of pretend they're AGMA companies and they follow the guidelines, um, but then don't, maybe don't you know, commit to some of the other things that AGMA would force them to. So the stronger that, you know, that baseline can be, the better it will be even in the non-AGMA signatories. No, the, the, it's, a, it's a tremendously important point because um, right now it, it's so much the Wild West in the non-union world that, you know, you roll the dice as to how seriously a company is going to take issues like sexual harassment and sexual assault. Uh, how strong their anti-harassment policies are, uh, what their enforcement looks like. This is another area where uniformity is of extraordinary benefit because you want to know that the safety of your workplace is not contingent on 
where your workplace happens to be for the next three and a half weeks. Um, right. Right. And that and, safety net's like so important. I mean, I, I, I haven't even really thought before about like, yeah, you come into a work environment, you're there for three, maybe five weeks, depending on the contract. And like, you know, I've, I've learned myself in the past two months, I've had to do labor organizing for a church, my church job that I've been at for eight years because of shenanigans going on there in the middle of the pandemic. And like, these are with coworkers who are my friends and my family essentially. And even that was like so deeply anxiety inducing and hard. Like I couldn't imagine being in a situation where like I was with a group of people I had just met and then something bad happening and being like, okay, and now we have to organize and stand up for each other. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, and I'm, I'm sure it's not even just when something bad happens. Right. Like the, the work that you guys are doing, and I'm really curious about, um, you know, that you're growing now and getting the word out. A lot of that, I, I would imagine, is educating singers on what should be expected when they sign a contract and what should be expected when they're doing their job. Soloists in particular, that can be really difficult because we are by nature isolated. We don't have the safety in numbers that one can feel. <laughs> there goes mine. That one can feel in a chorus or in an orchestra where you're with the same people every day. You're with new people every three weeks if you're an itinerant soloist. And so that safety net needs to come from someplace else. And so one of the things that we're really pushing for with AGMA is to set up a really strong and just standard code of ethics that applies to all signatories. And then hopefully when we go to other non-AGMA houses, we can come in and say, no, 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 this is the treatment I expect. That kind of was the whole origin of the CBA group. So like when I say CBA, if your eyes glaze over, like that's evidence that we need to actually talk about our collective bargaining agreements um, and what they are, what they do, how they function, how they function for different member categories, how they are deficient for um, soloists and other itinerant artists. Um, and I don't think that there's any controversy in saying that because if you were to look at the collective bargaining agreements, <laughs> there are some missing things. <laughs> for soloists that we could we are only as strong as the contracts we sign yeah so i mean that's part of mm. education and knowing knowing where to look in the contract and just for example comparing how the dancers have negotiated over time or um additional fees for shoes um how can we beef up our asks and similarly, um, you know, and, and it's, it's a total strategy, but we also, you can't have that conversation with folks who are traumatized by this pandemic. So you have to acknowledge that there is this massive thing going on in the world that is affecting our industry and then ask people to remove themselves from that for a second. And so we can educate people and, and really inform soloists about what it is that they are signing. Um, and that's an ongoing process. They don't teach that at conservatory. <laughs> How many of you took a contract reading class? No, no, not at all. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> 
I mean, admittedly, I only got into, I got two years of conservatory under my belt, but. <laughs> Even but, in any other music program, yeah, though, it's probably no. unlikely that you were taught how to read your contracts, what those things meant. No, and I mean, and I think that that in and of itself leads to this, this feeling of powerlessness that we all have um, and have experienced at some point if we've moved like beyond it to feeling empowered to do something about it. And I guess maybe like one of my questions would be for our audience in particular, like I know a lot of our listeners are either like Elisa and I, so we're at a level where we're, we're working fairly consistently, but we're not AGMA signatories yet. Um, but also like they're coming out of school and they haven't learned this information. And so that of course the mindset's gonna be like, oh my gosh, this is all so overwhelming. What can one little person do? I guess I just have to be okay with how it is. It's, it's a really, really good question um, because I think one of the, the, the reasons why we find ourselves where we are today is that um, because of the competitive nature of this career, uh, that people feel like it's them against the world, that everything that they achieve, they achieve at the expense of everyone else who was potentially up for that job or that slot in a young artist program. And uh, that narrative is largely artificial and largely benefits uh, the companies that would most seek to exploit us and not uh, us as a community. And so the more- has not been systemically weaponized. Um, So the more, exactly. So the, the more that we can think and work collectively uh, as, as colleagues and as a workforce, the better the results we're going to get. And the first inroad to that, in my opinion, especially for young uh, singers, is to always tell everybody exactly what you're getting paid whenever you're asked. Yes! <laughs> Thank you. Come on, Come on. <laughs> yes. That's another like yes. pretty much reason why I started this podcast, why we started this podcast, because I was like, nope, no one's talking about like the fact was... that they're getting paid. Right. right. No <laughs> one's talking about how they're getting paid so little that they can't actually live on what they make as a singer. Excuse me, so little? I yes. mean, excuse me. Zero. Zero. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> we're, without, and we're taught right. to be ashamed. Yeah. yeah. And without an organized workforce, the floor is zero. Absolutely. Mm. Um, but we can't, we can't find patterns of exploitative behavior or companies that aren't worth our time at all in their current form or, you know, uh, appropriate targeted opportunities for organizing uh, a new house, unless we're talking to each other about the reality uh, of working or volunteering or losing money uh, on these gigs. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, I spent years in in my early career uh, listening when people told me, oh, you know, well, you're you're getting more than, so could you please not tell, uh, no. Whenever someone is telling you not to tell someone what you're making, they are not putting your best interests or the interests of your colleagues at heart when they make that ask. Mm. Tell everyone all the time. Mm-hmm. Woo. Love it. 
<laughs> Speak my language. Yeah, I mean, I guess one of the biggest things we've all learned from this is, you know, power is in not being alone. And one of the beautiful things about the Soloist Coalition, I think my my friends here can agree, is that like, <laughs> I like barely know these people, but I've I feel like I know them now because so much of what we've been talking about is our shared concerns that we may not have even known were shared before. It can be really overwhelming and you can fall into that isolation so quickly as a soloist. Um, but for the people who are listening to this right now, you know, you're not alone. And if you reach out, you will find this amazing group of people who have a lot of the same concerns and the same mm-hmm. goals as you. Yeah. Yeah, and if it, it ends up being the the handful of naysayers that still exist that are saying, "Oh, it, well, this is just the way things are," and be grateful for what you get, don't talk to them anymore. <laughs> Move on to somebody else. <laughs> well, structural change is really yeah. difficult um, and disruptive, and uh, because of that, when people give that advice, it's it's not necessarily uh, that you know they're twirling their freshly waxed mustaches, mm-hmm. yeah. snively whiplash style uh, with evil intent. It really is that they lack uh, the information and the creative imagination. They're afraid. They're afraid. They're, you really uh, need just as yeah. much help as anyone And then you're probably very yeah. deeply hurt in much the right. same ways that we are right. all being deeply hurt. And to recognize that that's some unprocessed toxicity there. I was just saying they arguably need as much help as anybody else. Yeah, no, and then certainly, <laughs> I mean, like, I'm not saying, like, don't be their friend anymore. <laughs> what I, I, in the context of just, like, this isn't the person you're going to get help from. <laughs> recognize that. Recognize that input for what it is yeah. and say thank you so much yeah. for your opinion. Well, you know, <laughs> one of the great examples of this problem is what we were talking about just minutes ago, which is uh, the non-union houses. Because it, you know, if we are like, if we are a global workforce, and we are, and we have a goal of, let's say, a uh, an accruing health benefit, uh, that the more and and uh, accruing health benefits, generally speaking, require employer contributions. So the the funds for the premiums come from the employers directly. And that means the more employers who are able to contribute to these plans, the more likely we are as we flit about from house to house to qualify for health insurance. So we want those contributions coming from the union signatories. We want those contributions coming from the non-union houses. And ideally, we want them coming from foreign houses, if that's in any way possible. Mm. How do you get there? One of the ways is by organizing more of the non-union houses into union signatories. Uh, and one of the ways is, is to have a mandatory guest artist agreement that includes uh, a health payment like Actors' Equity. But the reason that we don't have more union signatories now, because we, we've actually lost signatories over the course of the last 30, 40 years. There are companies that used to be union that are non-union now. Um, because if we find that it would make sense to organize a house, um, because we are not bargaining in tiers, because we do not have a, a national basic agreement that can be easily adapted, it means bargaining for that first contract from scratch every time, which costs money for the lawyers on the union side. It costs money for, for the lawyers on the employer side. And then that contract has to be maintained through bargaining throughout the years. Um, if you do a simple math calculation, and say, well, 
how much in working dues is the union likely to bring in from this signatory house uh, based on their budget level and the number of productions that they do versus the cost of establishing and maintaining that contract, the union staff can look at that and say, well, this is not fiscally viable for us to organize, but that's not because it's a financial consideration. It's because we lack the national basic agreement that would radically change uh, the financial component of that. Uh, if we had uh, a mandatory guest artist agreement for AGMA members, uh, then even if they weren't AGMA signatories, they would still have a way to make the, the, the health uh, contribution. And if they were hiring a large number of AGMA members, uh, they would see the writing on the wall that perhaps this would, it would make more sense for us to become a signatory. So when I hear people say like, well, you know, we could do something like what the other unions are doing, but are you really comfortable with not being allowed to work non-union houses anymore? The question is loaded in such a way that it doesn't take into account all of the ways in which that could be made to happen and be equitable and be fair and move the industry forward. So when you, when you are asked that question in isolation, it's like, no, I want every gig I can get. Are you, what are you kidding? I don't want to cut my own left arm off. But it's an incomplete question that leads you uh, to an uninformed conclusion. Yeah. And, and nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Because really it should be, it should be, well, if we have a, you know, more signatory houses, period, then that won't be as much of a problem. <laughs> exactly. So... Let's talk a little bit about um, <laughs> sore subject, the pandemic. <laughs> I know you did mention a little bit about it's hard to talk to to singers like when they're when they're facing it's trauma. It's well, like trauma. It's just full on trauma. Yeah. yeah. Well, can you explain that a little bit and just talk about the Soloist Coalition like post you know current pandemic? <laughs> during pandemic um sure I, I mean one of the things that we identified early on in our conversations was just how emotionally charged everything was and i think that's normal in all organizations in the beginning days i think that you know everybody you know marcel as you encountered has an idea about how they want things to be organized and how they want it to go um, add the fact that we have lost potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars overnight. Um, that is a trauma. My husband is an opera singer. And so collectively we, we've lost a lot. Um, and, you know, so we identified a need to have a support group and we just thought, let's just try it. Like, let's just say, come to this meeting there's no crosstalk and just share. And maybe that will depersonalize the conversations because it was getting our emotions while valid, completely valid. We're totally getting in the way of anything productive. Right. Effective. So you opened up the conversation to a wider audience. Is that what you're saying? Well, we, we initially just started with the core and it was just a support group for the core. Uh, and then we realized that, that 
the need wasn't just limited to us. I mean, it was across the board and it's not just limited to soloists. Um, I think any group that's organizing uh, should explore the idea of a support group at this time because it's, it's necessary to understand that there are people in your community going through the grief process with you. And you may not be on the same journey, but it, I think, you know, it's such a foreign concept for soloists to trust other soloists and be vulnerable with other soloists that the, the walls we are breaking down just by asking people to show up, um, I think is a little historical. Mm. Uh, and the impact it's having on our members mm. was so deeply felt that it was a no-brainer to open up some of our meetings for all soloists. So we do have meetings that are available to all soloists. You do not have to be in the union. You do not have to be in the soloist coalition. Um, and each meeting has its own flavor and like, you know, different people are morning people. Some people are evening people and we have everything in between. <laughs> we, we just started a women's group um, or for people who identify as female. Um, and it's a need, it's a need that we identified early on that wasn't being met. Um, so there's, there's the education aspect of the SC, but there's also the support part because you just, you cannot move forward as a human being, let alone as an artist, if you feel genuinely isolated, I think. And we all have realized and said at various points in our support moments, like, why weren't we doing this before? Oh my God, we, we needed this before. We needed to be talking to each other about the things that were hurting us in our business, the abuse we've all been undergoing, the sort of quiet injustices that we don't openly talk about as a group, but actually, you know, maybe complain to our spouses about or to our sisters or whatever. Um, and another thing we've noticed is whenever we get a new person <laughs> into a group, one of them will invariably say, oh, I wasn't planning on talking today, but I feel so much better. And then they talk and they end up just like completely unloading. And there's just this glow that comes over them afterwards when they've actually shared with other people who feel the same things and are just there to listen and sympathize and empathize. And I don't, every time we get a new member, they end up kind of like coming all the time. <laughs> you, you become addicted to this sense of community and support that we just so often miss in our industry. Totally. Right. It's like, it's like group therapy in a way, which I think, I mean, even just, even just on a, on the standpoint of like, we need group therapy because of the incredible emotional toll that our, our work takes, you know, and, and, and not that that's an unhealthy thing. Like we're, we are expected to get up on the stage and be so incredibly vulnerable, make this tightrope walk, expose our innermost self, you know, and like that needs support too, because like, that's not, that's not easy work. Um, and so I really appreciate this kind of, you know, people over profits, you know, very holistic. Let's look at the whole artist so that then we have a space for us to, to process together. So when we come in to do the work, it can be about the work and not also like bringing in all of our emotional baggage with us. Right. But I mean, you know, we're all opera singers. So we would, and we're all improvising to the best of our ability to try and understand what the needs are that, that we must meet in order to make progress. And 
I, you know, I won't speak for anybody else here, but I was very much um, taught not to trust anybody and that every other soloist, regardless of whether or not they were my fach, was a threat and uh, would relay information or could not be trusted. You just could not be vulnerable with that person. So like when you found someone that you wanted to be friends with, it was like, you always, I always held on to that person for dear life because I thought I can trust you. What a ridiculous um, thing. I mean, yeah, and, I totally agree. And what a fucking fucked up thing. <laughs> directly or not, I think our industry definitely has that feeling permeating it i mean well even just even just the the handful of posts that show up every year around audition time from people like shouting out the people in the hallways at nola that were like being nice to each other that's so refreshing it's like why is that refreshing like we're all in a nerve-wracking situation why wouldn't we be cheering each other on i remember being shocked when i would audition in europe and realized how cool people were and like it just wasn't competitive it was never like oh where are you from what school did you go to what houses have you sung you're just like hey i'm gonna go get coffee do you want one like everyone's really chill and there's definitely this really toxic uh competitive nature to the american system that we would definitely like to see dismantled (laughs) yeah i mean i remember because i was taught that explicitly taught that i remember Mm -hmm. um an incredibly famous baritone telling me you know in this industry the men help the women and the women help the men and all of the men regardless are in competition with you and just you know be aware and you know, I, so it's like any bass who could potentially ever sing any of the roles that I sing, uh, you know, is someone that I should be like shooting daggers at with my eyes at all times. And I, I've, I've worked consciously to go exactly the other way with it, that I feel like if there's a gig that I can't take, uh, that that company's going to get a list of at least four names of people who I know and I love mm-hmm. who can sing that role brilliantly. Mm-hmm um and who i know would do the same for me uh that we we are not in competition we are in collaboration um we are here to help each other and the more we can think collectively the more we can think collaboratively the more we can uh respect and celebrate that the very fact that we would choose to do this thing at all gives us so much more in common Mm-hmm. than we even realize from our surface conversations right. uh, that that we benefit individually, uh, we benefit as a community, and the art form benefits from it aesthetically because it encourages us to be more vulnerable and receptive uh, on stage and off. Uh, and And that in turn helps our audience um, that, that we, we, we keep this competitive, every man for himself mindset at our peril. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Here are three ways you can support the movement of artists supporting artists. One, share and like our podcast with others on social media. Two, Leave a review and rate our show wherever it is that you're listening to our podcast. And three, sign up for our Patreon 
at patreon.com forward slash my so-called opera life. Behind the Curtain with the Opera Dolls. I'm Jenny. I'm Anna. And I'm Christina. And we're three New York City opera singers that created plush opera singing dolls in order to make opera tangible, relevant, and accessible to all, especially kids. We love opera, you love opera, but why don't our kids? Play some for them, people! We know these plots aren't always kid-friendly, our little mezzo Carmen, quote-unquote the traveler, and all the sopranos that die in the end. Whoops! But let's be real, this art form is super important and has inspired music and society throughout history. Check us out on theoperadolls.com or follow us at The Opera Dolls on Instagram. Hi, it's Jenny from The Opera Dolls. I'd like to speak with you this week about something that isn't always talked about openly in our industry. Perhaps it is something that you have already put into practice yourself, but you have noticed that others are falling short. In any case, I think that it is important that we talk about it amongst our peers, with our teachers, coaches, mentors, audiences, and anyone else involved in the performing arts. You will notice that many of the top-level artists have this particular skill. We all face challenges and obstacles in our personal and professional lives. Some have more opportunities and some do not have any at all. What is the difference? What is the core thing that is known to drive success and master ability? What is the very thing that allows you to be resilient? What is the one component that will help you get ahead and be successful in anything you do as much as having talent? It is something so simple as how you are thinking about yourself. The good news, that it is something that we can work on and train on a daily basis if you are willing to put in the work, just as we do with our voices. You may think it is impossible to always be positive in every situation, and that is precisely the point. The real creativity lies in the reframing of a situation in order to find the silver linings and make it into a positive experience. It is a choice how we react to certain things that may be outside of our control. Here are some things to keep in mind when developing a positive mindset. Notice your self-talk internally and with others about yourself. Stop yourself when you want to be negative about a situation or something that someone said to you or about yourself in general. Zoom out a bit and see it from a different perspective first before you attach any emotion to your reaction. Above all these, give yourself appreciation for where you're at right now and give appreciation to those that you are surrounded by. Teach it to your students and be a guide for your friends and family. Every day is an opportunity to be grateful, to celebrate yourself or do something that you enjoy. The more positive and affirming statements we make to ourselves and to others, the more we will attract what we want into our reality. In challenging times, there may be many unknowns, but our job is not to speculate. Our job is to relax into the knowing and the belief that we are supported that we have everything that we need, that we will have it figured out, and that we are abundant. During this time, my suggestion is to find simple ways to have fun and dive into your passions, because that, my friends, is how we continue to live a life worth singing about. What would be your suggestion or advice to our listeners and just singers in general that haven't yet you know, gotten addicted to the support system and, <laughs> and, uh, and just are not familiar with the Soloist Coalition and not familiar with even the thought of advocating for themselves in their job. Well, there's a whole, there's a whole community. 
of people who feel similarly. Yeah, just reach out. I think the best thing, especially if you're interested in the support groups, is to email us at sc at soloistcoalition.org. Um, and we can direct you to the best group that might be available for you. Uh, but also, I, I, I would like to make very clear that the education process and advocating for oneself as an artist is an ongoing project. Like, we, yes, we are more informed now than we were five months ago or six months ago. But that process of learning and feeling comfortable with advocating for yourself never stops. I mean, and it takes on many forms, not mm -hmm. just in the SC, but social media, um, to your manager, to your friends, like that's an art form in and of itself to advocate for yourself as an artist. And it's not something that is taught. <laughs> so we have to make sure that we are also meeting that particular need too. Um, so I would say if you, if you don't know, if you don't, if you are unsure of any of those things, please reach out to us because there's a whole community of people who feel similarly for sure. Yeah. And the SCYA forum is very committed to doing um, educational portions on almost all of our sort of open forum town halls. We'll do, you know, you can come in and sort of air your grievances for about an hour, or ask us what's going on, and we'll give you an update on what we've been working on. And then we'll have like a seminar. We have one coming up right now on recording at home. We're working on one on mental health in the performing arts. Um, and we've got a few more planned and have done some in the in the past on say like financial um, concerns for singers, how to be a freelance artist and do your finances. Um, so that's a really big part of what we're trying to do. So if you're just figuring out how you want to get involved with this community, that's another way is to just come to one of these and sort of sit there and listen and get a little bit of an idea of how this works um, or how we're hoping to see this work um, as we continue in the long haul of trying to solve some of these <laughs> seemingly unsolvable problems. Yeah, right. Right. Well, I mean, and advocating for yourself, like to that point is like, I don't think that's ever easy work. Like, I don't think advocating for yourself ever really feels comfortable, but I think like, I think you guys are doing incredible work in, in like cultivating a toolbox to give people to, to know how to deal with doing, having those uncomfortable conversations so that you can be happy in the long run. We're trying. It's a trial and error process for sure. Always just be, oh, we're humans, not robots. That is absolutely <laughs> right. And my assessment of this particular situation is that as soloists, if you didn't have a background in ensemble work or chorus work, we are completely unfamiliar with working in in harmony in a group in a community because we are so used to being paranoid about our own interests or what other people think of us um there's a culture change that we're trying to foster and that is probably i think for me one of the harder asks for our group than education i mean mm -hmm. education is accessible but asking people to believe that there is strength in numbers, that you're not alone in feeling uninformed or scared or um, nervous or threatened 
uh, we're all feeling that on some level. So, but, but understanding that there's just more, there's more than just the soloist coalition who feels that way, um, sometimes takes convincing because it's, it is genuinely, I think, a culture change that we're asking people to invest in. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, that's crazy to hear. But I mean, I believe it. But, but I mean, it's also a deeply personal thing we're asking people to change. I mean, because ultimately, it, 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 it. I mean, our, our, the culture in our industry just preys on this like constant lack of self worth that we're told to have, and we have to like grovel for everything. And so, like, it's it's literally trying to convince people that they're worth advocating for themselves. Like, their own self is worth enough to speak up and to try to change. And like, that's deeply personal work. Yeah, and, and that maybe losing the contract or losing the job if you stand up for yourself is not necessarily the end of the world. Right. And the other aspect of this is if you are trying to change the culture and changing the culture results in increasing worker power, increasing strength in numbers, that those who would seek to exploit us, which is not the whole industry, certainly, but you know, it would be absurd for me to suggest that there are no exploitative companies or exploitative administrators out there, that uh, those who would see their positions of power compromised by growing worker power are going to tell us that we're doing it wrong, are going to gaslight us, are going to try to resist these changes in insidious ways. And so part of the job is not just working to change the culture, but raising our awareness that sometimes when people are telling us that we're doing it wrong, we're doing it right. And we need to rely on each other to reinforce that when that you're doing it wrong narrative starts to come our way. I mean, when you're used to relinquishing your power and only being as valuable as your last successful audition, that is a toxic, toxic place to be. And I think it's one of the reasons why we have found ourselves in the position to be, to feel so helpless and powerless. Um, I don't believe we are powerless. I don't believe we are helpless. We just have to get these tools um, disseminated amongst our members in, in an effective way. I, I mean, but for so long, I mean, like still, if I think about the last audition that I did, I was so mean to myself <laughs> about like what wasn't perfect, like my onsets, my hair was bothering me. They saw it all. I'm trash. You know, like if they wanted me, they would hire me. These narratives aren't completely foreign to people, but it's it's indicative of the industry that we're in, that that is a more common narrative than just going in, singing, and then going to lunch and getting on with your life. Like, it's it's a psychological education too. Um, right. And it's, I mean, it, I wish it It's gonna take so long to unlearn that kind of stuff too, because once that's been taught to you by your industry, once that's been the common, you know, thread of information you've been getting from, you know, this club that you're trying desperately to join um, and you've been accepting that thread for so long, learning to not accept it, learning to not be mean to yourself, not talk to yourself that way is really, really hard. I, you know, like Liz had to 
I did a recording recently and I've been going to the support groups every week and I'm a generally optimistic person and I'm pretty good at like compartmentalizing, but I was still like an anxiety ridden mess coming into this recording. And of course I watched it afterwards and I was like, what the hell was, what was I doing to myself? I sound fine. Like, yeah, that one vowel was wacky, but whatever, like, I'm still a good person. It doesn't diminish my value, but we are so taught that if we, you know, speak up or speak out, we are diminished in value as artists. I mean, we're groomed for what's an essentially an abusive relationship. Well, well there we are talking about that last night that like on a certain level, if you want to be a professional opera singer, you must be willing to endure trauma throughout your entire career on some level. It could be emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual harassment, sexual assault. I do not know anybody in their professional career right now, maybe you guys do, I don't know, who has never encountered harassment, assault, uh, emotional abuse, manipulation. I mean, yes, voice teachers talk all the time about developing a thick skin, quote unquote but no one tells you why or what for, uh, just that you need to deal with it. Well, and sometimes those teachers are the, are the abusers too. That's right. Well, and the older I get, the more I realize that when people leave the business, we're sort of taught and we have this sort of like nudge, nudge, they left because they couldn't, they couldn't hack it. And the right. older I get, the older I get, the moldier I get, <laughs> the, more, <laughs> the more I realize it's not that they couldn't hack it, it's that they wouldn't. A lot of people leave this career because they're like, fuck this bullshit, you know? (laughs) And Mm -hmm. to them I say, hats off. But I think in the Soloist Coalition, one thing we really want to see is an industry where people leave not because they didn't want to put up with it anymore. You know, they leave because it just wasn't right for them. Not because it's so toxic that they don't want to be a part of this anymore because it's not mentally sustainable. Right. Well, and, and this gets right. into a really, because like circling back to the, the audition aspect of this, it does touch on all of these other issues in the sense that, like, for example, when I was a, a, a younger singer, I remember people saying, okay, well, this company, you really don't want to sing for them until you know you're ready. Because if you <laughs> sing for them twice and they don't like you either time, they will never hear you again. Right. Right. And so as compared to, you know, in the world of Actors' Equity where everybody can sing the EPA for Phantom of the Opera every year, once a year regardless mm-hmm. like they will hear you how am i supposed to know i'm ready exactly like what is ready right mean? ready means perfect and ready means like i'm going to go through paranoia of asking myself when am i ever going to be ready for this, for this company and if i sang <laughs> for them when and then thought oh well that didn't go well i wasn't ready oh no is there a con this? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the, but the pro if you feel like the stakes are that high one of the consequences is that you are more ripe for exploitation because if there's somebody who puts their arm around you and says, I can help you to navigate this, I can, you know, I, there are opportunities that are available to you through me. If only you would insert ellipsis here. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, When the gatekeepers 
have the keys like that, the chances that we are going to be exploited are much higher than if we work uh, to build access and opportunity as a community and take the power away from them, take those keys away from them and put them back in our own hands. But that means that we're going to face resistance from everyone who enjoys having the opportunity to exploit the power that they have. So let's talk a little bit about some of these initiatives and projects and like how you're like, I mean, we can go on for hours on all these topics. I mean, <laughs> but let's talk about how, how you guys, how the Solos Coalition is what projects and initiatives beyond just education in a broad sense, specific initiatives um, or projects or organizing going on in the coalition to just break down these walls. And if you wanna give an example of that resistance, like I, I'm kind of like curious about it cause I'm so just like anti that I can't even fathom. I can't even fathom it, but. You're so anti what? I'm so anti like that mindset, even though I acknowledge that I have that mindset, but if like, and, and yeah, like, I mean, what you were saying, um, Abby, about like, you know, you're good at compartmentalizing, but then you still have that like negativity against yourself. Like totally, that totally happens to me, but I'm curious if we could like get into some specific project or initiative that and then how maybe that resistance is being met and how it's being overcome as well do you get what I'm saying like it's like unfathomable to me that like and I don't know if you mean like singers like I think it's on all sides is what you're saying and it's just like let's get together peeps like right I mean I suspect some of the resistance he was talking about was like the actual like abusers hide out in our industry that are like that I mean frankly we're a great hiding place for them absolutely because there's no accountability right now absolutely and and I mean abusers can take a lot of different forms we we have it's a great question and a lot of different levels of abuse you yes. know it's not all just grabbing someone's ass in the hallway mm -hmm. I mean, we encounter resistance on all different levels. I mean, sometimes it's from colleagues who are not sure, again, and, and I have participated in this conversation that we should be so, quote unquote, confrontational um, about putting our asks out into the universe or um, talking about what it is that oh, we would like. do we want to be. Right. Um, and... Then you we all just put air quotes in case anyone's wondering. We all just put air quotes around yeah. the <laughs> Confrontational, quote unquote. Um, and, and part of working in a group of folks that you have a ton in common with, but like you don't actually know, is that you, you need to understand within yourself that those comments are coming from a very specific place. Um, people are worried for a reason. Um, we may not like it, but it's important to validate their concerns. And so we can like move on and do the work. So like, for example, in the CBA group, um, we've had so many conversations about media, all sorts of things that we want to advocate for in upcoming negotiations, media streaming rights, et cetera. And a lot of people aren't super comfortable with coming to a consensus um, about 
specific topics. And I don't want to get into detail too much because of confidentiality. And like, we do want to protect our asks a little bit and our ideas a little bit. Um, but we, you know, the resistance comes from just the <laughs> quote unquote audacity to even question that what is currently in a CBA is not in the best interest of a soloist. Um, it, it, because that in and of itself implies that there is a deficit and we need to revisit it. Um, maybe the union isn't doing a good job. What, however people want to misconstrue that. Um, the other kind of resistance that we get is from the outside world. I mean, it's very difficult to want to have a front-facing message that is representative of the SC and also maybe representative of soloists in general, because we, we just cannot represent every single soloist. But we can make every effort to poll and talk to people about what they're concerned about, um, their number one ask in a CBA, that kind of thing. Um, change will always encounter resistance, period. I think we know that. Uh, but we are trying to do the best we can about being proactive. We have an anti-racism group um, that, you know, we, when George Floyd was murdered, we put out a Black, a Black Lives Matter statement and part of that statement was that we hold ourselves to be accountable for being proactive in advocating for Black Lives Matter initiatives, not just initiatives, but for our Black colleagues. Um, and what, is that, what does that even mean? What does that look like? Um, how do we communicate inequity to the union so that we can put some enforceable language into CBAs? Um, and it's an ongoing conversation. I mean, we are still very much in the beginning stages of figuring out what it is that our black siblings want. Um, and also other singers of color, like this is a really, really important conversation that the anti-racism group has with great gusto taken on. Like we, it's a great group. Um, but in terms of resistance, it's, we are an activist group. There's really no way around that. We are advocating for the interests of soloists. Um, and that is threatening to some people, regardless of whatever groups or intentions we have. Just talking about this. And I, I, I want to just uh, amplify what Liz said, um, that tackling issues like this, uh, like systemic problems require systemic solutions. Um, and some of what that means is persuading people that there is a systemic problem, uh, which requires both anecdotes and data. Uh, and the union has a role to play in collecting and disseminating the data to show the problem. So this is an example of, of a deficit that we're facing. Uh, that, you know, again, uh, by, by way of comparison, uh, Actors' Equity has a diversity and inclusivity department, and they are uh, 
taking a hard look at casting disparities in their industries. But they're able to do that uh, for two main reasons. One is that they have voluntary self-identification for their members. So if an actor's equity member is a member of a marginalized group, equity knows it and can classify them accordingly because they've asked them to voluntarily identify and they have. And uh, because they have a mandatory guest artist agreement, they can look at how people are hired industry-wide rather than just uh, under the, the union contracts. So if you are going to, to take a hard look at casting disparity, you need uh, both of those data collection mechanisms online. AGMA has neither. And so as a result, if we want to say, yeah, we are pretty darn sure that there is some casting inequity here, uh, but we would like to show you the hard data, gathering it on an industry-wide basis is essentially impossible. Whereas uh, we, we can get it uh, if, if the companies are, are, are voluntarily providing it uh, and we do the hard work of, of asking, you know, what population is this individual singer potentially a member of? And that's why we got such a really great report out of Zach Finkelstein a few weeks ago, where he did a deep dive into the Metropolitan Opera Archive and found clear patterns uh, that he then published. I know Zach was on, on your show last season or earlier this season? Earlier this season, yeah. yeah. Um, and and he, he's doing some tremendous data gathering for this effort, despite the fact that it is so much harder than it should be. Right, I mean, we were even, I mean, uh, there is there is a ridiculous lack of numbers or even if there is any kind of data collection happening, like transparency of those numbers. I mean, even for our last episode, we were like, okay, well, just like how how many new opera singers come into the workforce every year? You cannot find that information anywhere that we were able to find. And like, so how many new works singers are coming into the workforce versus how many jobs are available versus how many people are leaving the workforce versus like, so like, what's the percentage of singers who actually get to have a managed career versus the rest of us that are kind of floating in the wilderness? That availability of information is something that the SCYA in particular is really concerned with. And so we've been doing some, some information collecting. Um, that's been one of our bigger initiatives of just that's awesome. even just asking young artists and asking companies like, hey, what, what are your plans? Because right now we're all staring down the barrel of wondering whether or not we should even apply mm -hmm. for auditions. Why would I shell out $300 worth of application fees when you're going to be taking the same six mezzo-sopranos that you were hiring last year, but couldn't work this summer because of COVID, which is a totally fair response, but you need to tell us that so that we know ahead of time. And you need to tell us in a way that isn't just posting it in app tracker, because who's checking app tracker right now? I, ha I like, don't have it. I let it lapse. No. <laughs> Why would you? Why would you are not going to pay $55 right now to check for updates that aren't there that for things you are guessing aren't happening. And so there's a, there's a huge lack of communication between companies and the people that they, you know, claim to be supporting and promoting um, and that we are trying to work with our companies and talk to them about like, Hey, you need to post this on social media. Like it's 2020, <laughs> you're asking a bunch of Gen Zers, yeah. you know, and millennials 
to you know respond to this information, but you're sending it to our spam folders or you're sending it to a website most of us aren't using right now. And the CYA has encountered their own resistance with that. Right. Some companies are like, name yourselves. And it's like, well, <laughs> what? Name yourself so that you cannot hire me? Is that why you're asking? We're gonna me to name hire yourself? me anyway. Uh, <laughs> so there has been an enormous amount of um collaboration though. Most companies are actually willing to help us and willing to, you know, work with us and be like, oh, thank you for helping us make this easier. Some companies are like, name yourselves, but for the most I'm just, I'm surprised to hear you say all of this, honestly, because I feel like between Ask Jeeves and GeoCities, I always get all of the information that I need. <laughs> Let me just pull up my Alta Vista window here. <laughs> you can email me at hotmail.com. <laughs> And just for some context, like Equity has what, David, 40,000 plus members and and Agma has 7,000 plus members. So, I mean, not to point out the obvious, but to point out the obvious, if an organization with 40,000 plus members can get their act together and have aggregated data, you would think that an organization of 7,000 plus could get that very easily. I mean, at minimum, if you're an organization that is committed to helping its members, you would think you would have a vested interest in collecting and making that data available. It seems like there's like a, you know, a chain email with a Google poll attached to it that could go out. Uh, well, this has been a great conversation. We are so appreciative that, that you all gave your time to talk with us today. I would love to close out with what you're most excited about as members of the coalition or what like you hope to see, you know, through the efforts make an impact in, let's say, in your lifetime. <laughs> well, um, First of all, thank you so much for having us. Uh, it, it was a, a tremendous pleasure to be here and, and we could double the length of this easily. There's so much to talk about. Um, but the thing that I have been most um, excited about is finding the ways in which the labor movement and the aesthetic growth of opera as an art form are interconnected in the sense that um, if we really uh, think in terms of strength in numbers, if we work to build our influence collectively as soulless in the industry, that over time, one of the potential consequences of that is that we will see more interested, interesting and exciting voices in our art form that, that will have an aesthetic impact on the stories that we're telling and how we're telling them and where we're telling them uh, and the, the cross-pollination of, of style that will keep this art form relevant for generations to come. And that's something that we've, you know, we've barely touched on today, uh, but I believe that those issues, that the, the, the workers' rights and the aesthetics of the art form are far more connected than we would intuitively imagine mm -hmm. they are. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to exploring that interconnectivity more and more uh, in the months ahead. I'm really excited by just the communication that's happening in 
a group of people that has felt so isolated for so long. I think it's going to do wonders for our industry. I think it's going to do wonders for our mental health. And I think it's going to do wonders for the mental health of our industry um, to slowly dismantle this cone of silence that we've all been trained to just be okay with. And hopefully some of the gaslighting that is so common in our industry will start to go away. Um, so I'm, I'm really uh, hopeful for the communication muscles that we're all learning to flex and build. Mm. Yeah, I mean, both David and Abby pretty much, I echo their sentiments. I mean, I, if you would have told me a year ago that I was going to be involved in a labor union volunteer advocacy group, uh, yeah, I'm not sure I would have believed you. In fact, I probably would not have believed you like at all. Um, so I'm hopeful that as we make our baby steps, because that's exactly what we're doing, we're taking baby steps um, towards advocacy, towards more equitable and humane business practices across the board, um, that people will become interested and know that we, we are interested in advocating for soloists as a whole. It's a very broad and general sentiment, but I think it kind of has to be because we still don't know what's on the horizon, um, what it is that we are going to have to contend with as this pandemic goes on. Um, it's a scary time for everybody, but the one glimmer of hope that I hang on to is that there is a sense of community and it's a community that I didn't really know even existed until this all happened. And I'm sorry it took a pandemic to get here, but I, I'm optimistic about even just raising the collective intelligence of soloists. We're trying to do the best that we can with the tools that we have to advocate for ourselves and have productive conversations with leadership. It doesn't always work, but we will keep trying. And, 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 the work we are doing now, arguably, is not for us. It is for the generations after us that we can hopefully provide a better work experience in the United States, at least. Mm -hmm. um, that's what I hope yeah. for. But one day at a time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I think the undercurrent and all of that, that's worth saying, because I think we forget in our anxieties and frustrations with how dysfunctional stuff is that, like, we're putting up a fight because we love this art form so much. We, we love it so much. We find something so inherently valuable about, with it that we don't want it to die. Maybe in its current iteration, it needs to die and like grow as something new, but like we love this art form. Oh yeah. I mean, I think it's important to clarify that the art is why we're here. The industry is the thing that we want to change. Uh, and I want to be very clear about that because we all, the one thing we all have in common is that we love to sing and tell stories. So uh, you just, I think we're all kind of putting that in the bank and hoping that the return is much greater than any kind of effort that we could produce right now. But I'm optimistic. It's hard. It is hard work. I'm not going to lie. Uh, but I think the form will survive without the status quo. I agree. Those two things are not dependent on each other. Absolutely. We can change this and opera will still exist. 
that's not going to go anywhere. Yeah, the, the, right? the, the things that people think are sacred are not what is sacred to this art form. It, it, is, it is not about staid performances of 18th and 19th century repertoire that'll be completely inoffensive to the donor class. It, it is about keeping this engine of catharsis turning uh, and, and to provide that power and that catharsis to new generations and new audiences to tell the stories that are relevant to them, to, to take the, the, uh, the standard repertoire and re-envision it in ways that create that connection from performer to audience and elicit that catharsis. That's what's sacred. Yeah. Amen to that. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Yes. It's been a pleasure. Well, that's our episode for today. Let us know what you thought of this week's episode on social media at My So Called Opera Life or send us an email at info at mysocalledoperalife.com. We love to hear from you. Finally, many thanks to our season two sponsor, the Sparkle Twins. If you're looking for a mouth mask these days so you can leave your house to stock up on coffee, or let's be serious, some wine, <laughs> support these artists in the process by ordering one of their mouth masks made especially with singers and performers in mind. To order yours, visit www.sopranotwins.com forward slash shop. Stay safe, stay healthy, and keep on singing. Bye.